Welcome to Knowledgeable Aging. I'm your host, Jason Kotar. Joining us today to talk about how to make sure your estate goes to the right people is Lindsay Sarowitz. Lindsay has been with Handler & Levine since 2013. She is an associate with a firm and regularly represents individuals, including federal government employees, in preparing their estate plans consisting of wills, trusts, powers of attorneys, healthcare directives, and other estate planning documents. She also represents estates and trustees in regard to descendants' issues, helping guide families through probate and trust administration following the loss of a loved one. Ms. Sarowitz is a member of the Bar in Maryland in the District of Columbia and practices regularly in both jurisdictions. How are you doing today, Lindsay? Hi, Jason. I'm good. How are you? Very good. Thank you for joining us today. Looking forward to our conversation. Um, before we get started, um, just a little bit of housekeeping. For those that are joining us for the live webinar, type your questions in. Time permitting, we will do everything in our power to get those questions answered. So, Lindsay, let's get started. How can I make sure my estate goes to the people I want it to go to? Excellent question. I think that's the question a lot of people have when they first uh, contact me and find out that I'm the person or the type of person that they should contact. So the best way to ensure that your assets go to the people that you want them to go to um, is to have an estate plan. Uh, specifically, you would want to make sure that you designate the appropriate person or people to receive your assets, whether that's family members, friends, charities, or a combination. You can and really the, the sky is the limit, uh, as they would say. Um, and also, not only who you want to receive your assets, but how you want them to receive your assets, such as outright or in trust um, at your death. So this would be done through a last will and testament or a revocable living trust. In addition, you would need to make sure that your beneficiary designations are done and coordinated appropriately, for example, for your retirement and life insurance as they apply to you. I know that was a loaded answer. <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, so let's let's kind of go a deeper dive into that. Um, if you're going to leave it either uh, outright in a trust, how does that work? Sure. So if you have, um, let's say, adult children. And by adult, I maybe don't mean, you know, legally an adult 18 years old. I mean, like, out in the world, uh, appropriately living, you know, kind of on their own. If you have adult children that um, you're not concerned about leaving money to them, you're not worried about any creditor issues, any spousal issues, any... Um, you know, uh, drug or alcohol issues, things like that, you may wish to um, leave them their money outright. So again, that's, uh, an, if you don't have an, in, if you don't have a concern about an inability to handle money, for example, you might want to leave them their money outright. What that means is they just get it. You pass away, they get their money, however it may be received, you know, a uh, number of checks or what have you, um, but they get it and they can do whatever they want with it. Contrast that to if you have um, beneficiaries who maybe you do have a concern. Maybe they're not so good with money, you know, maybe they're technically an adult, but they haven't fully launched into the world and don't really know what it means to be an adult yet. Or maybe you're in uh, an unfortunate situation where a family member does have a problem, maybe with drugs, alcohol use, creditors, things like that. Then 
you wouldn't want to leave your estate to them outright um, because that would be a potential disaster, actually. Um, so um, you might want to leave their inheritance in trust. Now, um, trusts come into play as well, even in that first scenario where I mentioned you have children, let's say, and you don't have any uh, concerns about them inheriting. So they might get their share outright. We say outright and free of trust in the actual document. Uh, but that's just the first level, right? So you're gone. The first level is your children in this example. But then if they were to predecease you, we always need to leave backups. So maybe you have minor uh, grandchildren. So that trust that I mentioned would still be appropriate just on that next level. Does that make sense? So you might leave outright to the first people, but then in trust if, God forbid, something happened to your kids before you. So, so that, what is it? I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, go. I was going to say that's called a testamentary trust is, is what that is called. Okay. And I was going to ask you that. So, so what is a testamentary trust? Sure. So a testamentary trust is a trust that you would create in your last will and testament or in your revocable living trust and it springs to life at your death. So people get confused, and rightfully so, because there are many different types of trusts. So a testamentary trust is any trust, again, that is in a document that doesn't exist today, it doesn't exist when you sign it, but rather there's some triggering event, such as your death, most likely. And at that event, at your death, if the terms are, um, your, the terms would be laid out, and if they're met, then it would spring to existence. For example, in that example I said before, you know, maybe you don't have any known concerns about your children inheriting, but let's say uh, one of your children predeceases you, right? So your actual document will say, if my children shall survive me, let's say my estate is distributed equally to them, outright and free of trust, but then the document would say, if any of my children fail to survive me, then their share will go to their children in trust. It's just an example. So the thing that's going to make this testamentary trust spring into existence is you're gone and one of your children is gone. So that's what gives it life, so to speak. Otherwise, if those conditions aren't met, which you hope they're not in this scenario, if they're not met, then the trust is just words on a piece of paper. Um, it never actually springs into existence and comes into effect. Um, and they can be created for anyone. So I'm using examples as children, but they can be created for a spouse, a child, grandchildren, like I said, or even a parent. I've done parental trust before. Um, but one of the reasons I find that people put off doing estate planning, even for years oftentimes, is because they have minor children or grandchildren or kids that have problems, and they just can't figure out how to leave this money to them. So it's no reason to put off your planning. Um, what we do is we just create ways for them to inherit safely and appropriately and things like that. Um, and also, similarly, a lot of people don't realize that they're minor children. Minors can't 
inherit legally. So I've had situations where someone has failed to do their planning and then the if you don't have an estate plan, if you don't have a will, your uh, assets will be passed according to the laws of the state, intestate law, it's called. And I've had situations where the parent didn't do any planning and the laws of intestacy uh, dictated that part of their estate would go to their minor child. So rather than just having to open up a probate at their death, I've actually had to open up guardianships and a guardianship for a minor, the money that goes to the minor, not the person, not the custody, physical custody, but who has control of the money. And this type of trust is exactly uh, to, to uh, prevent that from having to happen. Because as you can imagine, guardianships are expensive, time consuming, difficult, all those things. And we can generally totally avoid that by having a testamentary trust uh, for minors. Um, so that's really, I think, a helpful, a very helpful tool um, if that situation were to arise. Quick question, Lindsay, about that. So let's just say, I assume since you're licensed in D.C. and Maryland and you're dealing with your client lives in, say, Maryland, if they've got a child or a grandchild that lives in another state, do, do they need to get an attorney in that state as well regarding this, um, this document or no? Um, it depends. So um, if, let's say, my client lives in Maryland, D.C. or Virginia, I help people in Virginia, um, if they live here, then what we would do is we would do their estate planning here. Okay. So, um, so we would create this, uh, the testamentary trust and all the terms and everything here in Maryland, D.C., Virginia, wherever here maybe. Um, and just because the child lives out of state, that typically wouldn't require. Uh, an attorney from that other state to step in. What would require an out-of-state attorney is if they didn't do the planning during their lifetime and the guardianship needs to occur because a guardianship does need to occur in the state where the minor is located. Does that make sense? Makes makes perfect sense. So I want to talk about the trust. So if we got mm -hmm. a trust for a minor or a young adult, what does it have to say? Um, there's numerous uh, terms, of course, but one major thing that the trust does need to do is name a trustee, the person who's in charge of the money to handle the assets for the benefit of the beneficiary, whoever that minor or young adult or whomever it may be. Um, and and it so the trustee is the person in charge of the money, and then the trust will again, spring into existence at that triggering event, like the death of the trustor or the grantor. Um, and um, it'll basically extend the age of distribution. So if um, the law says that someone is an adult and legally can inherit money at age 18 or 21, depending on the jurisdiction, well, this trust can allow us to extend the age of distribution to whatever later age the parent selects. Um, and they would also choose the manner of distribution. So 
I'll just give an example, um, and I know it's hard to kind of think about. It's a lot easier when my clients see it on paper, to be quite honest, when they have their drafts in front of them. But a typical trust for minors would provide um, for holding all the trust assets for what we call HEMS standards, H-E-M-S, that's health, education, maintenance, and support of the child. So, so when the parent passes away, the trust money can be used for everything that the parent was paying for for the child anyway. So health, uh, you know, uh, health insurance, doctor's visits, college tuition, room and board, books, food, all that stuff that the parent would otherwise pay for. And then the trust will actually state when, if at all, the, the minor or the adult child can get outright distributions of trust principle. So that would say at certain ages. For example, a lot of the trusts I do would say the minor gets uh, 5% uh, at age 22 or when they graduate from college, whichever occurs first, 10% at age 25, 25% at age 30, and the remainder at age 35. Now, if the clients um, have very young children, like I have a lot of clients who come to me when they just start a family, um, we'll often extend the trust terms out pretty far, say to age 35 or 40 even, because this baby, you know, might be the smartest one-year-old you've ever met in your life, but you don't really know how they're going to develop and grow. And remember, for most of these people, this trust would just occur if um, both parents died at a very young age. So that needs to be considered as well. So for the, the younger the child is at the time of creation, typically the longer we'll make the trust go. Um, on the other side of it is if a client's kids are older, for example, they're technically adults, but they haven't really fully launched yet, um, we'll have a better idea of what path they're on. Like we, we have a better idea, even though they're not fully developed, let's say at age 22, uh, what path the kid's on versus age two. So for those people, we might shorten the distribution maybe to age 30. Uh, we may get bigger distributions earlier. Um, or we could even make it so that that adult child um, can be a trustee of his or her own trust along with someone else, say a, a trustworthy aunt or uncle or someone like that, so that they can kind of see what it's like to handle money before they actually get it. Um, we never want to give our children so much money at an early age that they think they're never going to have to work, right? So a 17-year-old that knows they're set to inherit a million dollars may think, well, I don't need to uh, to go to college and I don't need to get a job and that's going to last me forever. You and I both know that that million dollars is not going to last very long at all in that right. scenario. Um, so that's one, one important thing to remember. And then also, um, when it comes to creating trust for adult children with known concerns, like I mentioned earlier, uh, alcohol, drug use, mental issues, physical issues, spousal issues, all those things, we would give the trustee more tools to deal with the applicable issues. So so we, we consider all of those things when we draft the documents. And then you may have heard of a special needs trust. That's that's a trust that's sometimes set up 
if the child is disabled and receiving government assistance. That's very technical, um, but I want to mention it because um, you know it, it really needs to be set up in a way that will allow the child to inherit money but not cut off that government assistance. So it's really important when uh, you know you sit down with your attorney that you lay all your cards out on the table. You know, don't hold anything back. Everything is privileged and confidential between you and the attorney. Um, maybe, you know, I'm not saying you should be, maybe you're embarrassed that your uh, child is in a certain situation right now. You know, just tell the attorney so that they can give you the tools that, that will assist you in handling this type of situation. So you mentioned a trustee, Lindsay. What exactly is the are the roles of of a trustee? Sure. So the trustee, like I said, is the person that's going to be in control of the money. Okay. Um, if it is a minor child that you're uh, dealing with, then you would also name a guardian. But I want to be clear that the guardian and the trustee are two different roles. Now they may be, you know, two different hats that the same person wears. And in fact, that would be ideal if you trust that same person for both roles. But the guardian takes control and legal and physical custody of the child. If the parents are gone, the trustee handles the money for the child's benefit. So again, much easier if they are the same person, but if you happen to have a scenario where they're not the same person, it's okay. Um, so the trustee, typically we would give very broad discretion because after all you, you being the parents, are gone. And the trustee is boots on the ground, they see how your kid's growing up, what they're doing, what's going on after you've both passed away. Um, so we usually allow the trustee to have discretion to make earlier distributions than the one I meant, the ones I mentioned, and or larger distributions, for example, for worthy objectives, we call them. And we actually write this in the document. So a worthy object objective would be like paying for a wedding, purchasing an appropriate home. We say appropriate because you don't want to just because you can afford the house doesn't mean the kid's going to be able to afford the taxes and the upkeep and the utilities. So an appropriate home, acquiring an appropriate business, and then expenses related to childcare. And then on the flip side, we also give the trustee discretion to hold back distributions if he or she seems sees some sort of worrisome behavior that the child is uh, partaking in, let's say. So drug use, alcohol abuse, spousal issues, things like that. We don't want to say, generally speaking, you know, the trustee has to make this distribution at this time. Because, for example, if the kid's in the middle of filing for bankruptcy, you know, you don't really want that distribution to be made at that time. So same with those other things. So you would give them the discretion to hold back that money until it's an appropriate time. Yeah. So I guess the million dollar question, Lindsay, is who do I name as my trustee, right? Right. Yes, that is something that everyone uh, needs to figure out if they're in this situation, even if they're not. You know, who do I name as my personal representative under my will? Who do I name as my uh, agent under my power of attorney? Um, when it comes to who to name as your trustee or those other roles I mentioned, um, 
you know, any fiduciary role, I'll say, the characteristics that I often say to look for are trust and common sense. So you want someone that you're going to trust to handle potentially a large amount of money for someone completely independent of them, right? So the trustee, yes, they can get trustee fees and whatever, but they're often not going to be any sort of beneficiary of your estate. Um, so let's say you name your brother to handle the money for your children. You know, you want to have that trust that he's going to use it for their benefit. And then the other one, common sense, you know, that that really cuts a lot of people's lists in half. You've probably heard me say that before. But, um, you know, the trustee does not have to have any specialized knowledge. You don't have to name an attorney. You don't have to name a CPA. You don't have to name a financial advisor. In fact, those people should be last on your list, only if you don't have anyone else like a friend or family member to name. Why? Because I'm probably going to charge a lot more than your brother is, right? But in that scenario, you know, your brother could hire an attorney, could hire a CPA, should hire a financial advisor to help them invest the money appropriately uh, for your children's benefit. So um, that's kind of, you know, uh, what we look for when deciding who to name as a trustee. And you know, one thing to consider also, and I always have this, I often, I shouldn't say always, I often have this conversation with clients when they have multiple children. So I have a client right now who has a son and a daughter. The daughter happens to be younger than the son is, but she is like doing great. She has a great job. She's married to a man with a great job. They are really good with their finances. And her older brother, not so much. He has some, there's some concerns about potential alcohol abuse, possibly mental illness. We're not really sure yet, or I should say the parents aren't really sure yet, and they're figuring that out. So I had, of course, my client said to me, well, his sister should be in charge of his money. Um, she's doing great, and she's going to be, you know, she's close to him, and they get along. And I always pause and I tell the client to think about, do you really want your other child to be in charge of the money? Because, you know, kids, it, adult children still might bicker. Maybe it's less than when they were younger, but you don't want your daughter to have to say, no, I'm not giving you money for that, right? That's going to strain the relationship, um, most likely. Not in every scenario, but usually. So, so I say look to other people, you know, do you have any siblings, an aunt or an uncle of that child that maybe they've grown up with, maybe they already look to as kind of an authority figure? Because um, it's really hard looking to your sibling and saying, hey, give me what they might think is my fair share, right? And they might think in this scenario, the, the son might think, well, my sister's not giving me a piece of what I'm entitled to because then she gets to keep it. Now, right. I both know that's not true. It would just sit in the trust, but still you don't wanna create that kind of tension. So it really is a good idea whenever possible to avoid naming the sibling um, as the trustee. And, you know, like I said, think about family. Um, if, if you don't have any close family members that you could name as trustee or any fiduciary, 
expand your definition of family. Think about more distant relatives, uh, maybe close friends, uh, maybe even coworkers that you've worked with for a million years and they've become like family, right? Because a lot of times we uh, think about these things and we don't have a broad enough lens at first and we think, well, it's just me and the two kids. But, you know, if you kind of expand that, again, we don't want to name uh, an attorney or anyone like that unless absolutely necessary because I would much rather your money go to your kids than to go to my hourly fee, right? Um, so there's a lot of things that the trustee can and should do without, without assistance. Um, namely because I don't even know your kids, right? So so it just kind of makes sense. I assume you can change this trustee, right? It's not like once you make this name, they're, they're set in stone, right? Oh, that's a really good question. Yes, I'm glad you asked that. So any of the documents that I create for my clients, I, I don't create irrevocable trust. There are such things as irrevocable trust, um, but all the trusts that I would create, all the wills, all the powers of attorney, all of those things, not only can the trustee be changed, but the whole thing can be changed. And it often is. So those clients who come into me when they have their first child, they're likely going to make a lot of changes during their lifetime. We hope this trust never even has to spring into existence because they live to a very healthy age and, and their kids are adults and doing well and they never have to inherit under the trust. But um, yeah, so I generally uh, tell people, you know, look at your documents every three years or so. Make sure they still make sense to you. Make sure that trustee you named is still the person you want to be named. Um, and then have a checkup. I call it with me every five years or so sit down with me in this case in this world we're living in we're doing everything uh, on zoom or a similar platform but have a conversation because you know what changes happened in your life I know what changes have happened in the law and unless we sit down together we don't really see the other side of it so that's a really good point uh, none of this is set in stone everything can be amended, changed. Just be careful if you're you're drafting an irrevocable trust because that is different. So you, you had mentioned kind of early on that not a lot of people have these conversations. So if they're talking about when you're, you know, you've got a, a child, why aren't they doing it sooner? I mean, I know in, in society, we're usually very reactive as, a, as opposed to proactive. In your experience, why, why are people kind of so hesitant to to not have this conversation and, and move forward? I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, sometimes it does take, uh, because we are reactive, sometimes it does take a major life event for mm -hmm. people to give you a call. Um, you know, maybe someone close to them passed away and they realized, uh, you know, we never know when our time's going to be. Um, I have people all the time that I say uh, when I do their planning and I have the whole conversation with them, right? We, They know how important estate planning is. And then I say, are you interested in maybe, you know, having you talk to your adult child to do their plan? And a lot of times they'll say, no, they're young. But but we know like we've just been through this entire exercise and and I just I I I know that a big part of it is people don't like to think about death. I don't like to think about death, and this is my what I do every day, right? right. Um, 
so a lot of times even when I send drafts to clients I'll get responses saying sorry I haven't tackled this yet you know I know it's been a month but I haven't even opened the documents because ugh, I don't want to think about it um, and I think that's part of it too you know sometimes we bury our head in the sand um, I know with COVID a lot of people I got a lot of calls in the beginning because that was that triggering event Trigger. that they yep. realized I don't know what's going to happen so it's just really important to sit down with an attorney. A lot of them will give a free consultation. I know I do. You have nothing to lose um, except an hour of your time. And, um, and I think you have a whole lot to gain because like a winter coat, you'd rather, I'd rather you have it and not need it like these testamentary trusts than need it and not have it. Is there any reason why you had to go with winter? Can't we just do some type of you know, analogy with summer? I mean, come on, let's, you know, I'm trying to stay warm here, Lindsay. I have the heat on in my office. I'm constantly freezing. So uh, it's top of mind for me. Very good. So let, I want to stay with the idea of how often you should review this. So as we're talking about children, it's you, know, you mentioned the word triggers. It seems to me that they should be meeting with you on a little bit more regular basis because maybe as these triggers with death or COVID, but you know the changes with their children as you know as they age. Yeah, for sure. So a lot of people, listen, a lot of people will set up their documents. Let's say they have a baby or two. Um, mm -hmm. and the, the appropriate person, say their sibling or someone, they'll have them down as the trustee and they'll have all the right people uh, for the time being. So right. maybe that document in their mind is going to last them maybe even 15 or 20 years. Um, but but don't wait 15 or 20 years before calling me again because again changes happen in the law they passed the secure act this past year which changed yep. a lot of stuff about retirement and things like that that not everyone uh, is aware of so so it's still a good idea to sit down with me but you know uh, so for many years your uh, people your your overall plan may not change but then there's a time period when you might make a whole bunch of changes, say between your kids when they're ages, I don't know, 20 to, to 30 or 35, maybe they really develop, maybe they have kids of their own, maybe they get married, you know. And so uh, there are time periods in people's lives where they make a lot of changes and then there's times where they really make none at all. And it depends on the person's individual situation. Also, don't forget, people die. And so if you're in the unfortunate situation where someone you've named in any role whatsoever in your estate plan has passed away or is ill, that's certainly reason to come sit down and make a change as well. Gotcha. Well, excellent stuff, Lindsay. So how can people find you? Thank you for asking. Um, there, there is this slide. Um, my physical office is in Bethesda, about a block away from the metro station. Um, right now, we're doing uh, all the initial consultations and everything remotely. People can just email me. It's on the screen, Lindsay, spelled with an E-Y, at handlerlevine.com. Um, and we can set up an initial consultation, do that on Zoom or whatever uh, method is convenient. And then, you know, I can go over kind of the overall planning process and what this would look like. And again, consultations free, uh, nothing to lose there as far as I'm concerned. So I'm happy to, to field all the calls and emails that, that I can. 
if you don't mind, Lindsay, so there's going to be people that are going to be listening to this on our podcast. Can you, uh, any uh, address or phone number would be ideal? Oh, thank you. Yes, Jason. Um, so we are located at 4520 East West Highway, Suite 700 in Bethesda. Don't stop by. Instead, give me a call at 301-961-6464, extension 3315. Again, 301-961-6464, extension 3315. Or you can email me. That's actually the easiest for me. Uh, my email address is Lindsay, spelled L-I-N-D-S-E-Y, at handlerlevine.com. That's H-A-N-D-L-E-R-L-E-V-I-N-E.com. And if you want to check out our website, it's um, handlerlevine.com. And you can, uh, you can see all about us and some blog posts and some FAQs and things like that that I think are really helpful. Excellent. Um, so this webinar will be on our YouTube page. Go to YouTube, type in Knowledgeable Aging. I encourage you to subscribe. We're putting out multiple webinars every week. Um, we will also convert this webinar to a podcast. So you can go on to Spotify, um, you know, Apple, Apple, Apple Tunes, et cetera. Uh, you can listen to that. We update the, the webinars once again with via podcast. So um, check us out there. Till next time, I'm your host, Jason Kotar, and this is Knowledgeable Aging.